from Ezekiel. This is uh, chapter 33, verses 7 to 33. So I'll just give you a moment in case you have your Bible with you or your device. So it's Ezekiel chapter 33, starting at verse 7. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved." Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offences and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Therefore, son of man, say to your people, if someone who is righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for nothing. And if someone who is wicked repents, that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. The righteous person who sins will not be allowed to live, even though they were formerly righteous. If I tell a righteous person that they will surely live, but then they trust in their righteousness and do evil. None of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. They will die for the evil they have done. And if I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, but they then turn away from their sin and do what is just and right, if they give back what they took in pledge for a loan, return what they have stolen, follow the decrees that give life and do no evil, that person will surely live, they will not die. None of the sins that person has committed will be remembered against them. They have done what is just and right, they will surely live. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just, but it is their way that is not just. If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, they will die for it. And if a wicked person turns away from their wickedness and does what is just and right, they will live by doing so. Yet you Israelites say, the way of the Lord is not just. But I will judge each of you according to your own ways. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. Now the evening before the man arrived... The hand of the Lord was on me, and he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer silent. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the people living in those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he possessed the land. But we are many. Surely the land has been given to us as our possession. Therefore say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Since you eat meat with the blood still in it and look to your idols and shed blood, 
Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, you do detestable things, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? Say this to them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. As surely as I live, those who are left in the ruins will fall by the sword. Those out in the country I will give to the wild animals to be devoured. And those in strongholds and caves will die of a plague. I will make the land a desolate waste. And her proud strength will come to an end. And the mountains of Israel will become desolate so that no one will cross them. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have made the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable things they've done. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Uh, thanks so much, Sue. And uh, hi, my name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers. Good day uh, in uh, YouTube land as well. Can I be more insistent than Sue and ask you to get your Bibles open or your devices open to Ezekiel 33? That would be really helpful to me uh, and to you as well, I guess. I'm going to pray and then we'll get underway. Uh, Heavenly Father God, I thank you for being a God who speaks and help us to be a people who listen, um, not just for information's sake, but that we might glorify you. Amen. Amen. This is breakfast in our household, up somewhere between 6 and 6.15. I try to be cheery towards teenage boys. Gary, you're yawning. You're yawning. This is what my experience of breakfast is like. <laughs> Sorry to pick on you, Gary. Uh, I try to be cheery towards uh, three teenage boys who stare bleary-eyed through bed hair that really should have been cut a long time ago. Um, into their bowl of wheat bix. Now, they're not interested in conversation, so grunts and one-word answers, the sort of standard communication at that hour. But I was um, recently staring at the box of wheat bix on the bench, and I noticed that on the back they've got recipes for things that you can make with wheat bix other than kind of um, breakfast mush. And so on the back of the box of the current box is a recipe for wheat bix, banana, pancakes. All right, now I just want you to think, what is the odd word out of those three? Wheat bix, banana, pancakes. I think uh, banana pancakes sound delightful. I don't know why you would wreck them by putting wheat bix in there. It's like when the makers of Vegemite go, you know what, chuck Vegemite into your bolognese recipe and that will just fire it up to like, you know, unforeseen levels. Truth is, you can add wheat bix to your banana pancakes, I guess, or Vegemite to your bolognese recipe, and it probably won't wreck the recipe. My question is, does it make it any better? Does it make a difference? And it made me think whether we basically do the same thing with our lives. You know, I mean, our relationship with God is in the mix somewhere, but does not make a discernible difference? His relationship with God is at the foundation, the bedrock, the pillar of my life. Is it the irreducible minimum that if everything else was taken away, would see me continue to thrive? Is it the key ingredient in your life? 
Another way of looking at this is to um, ask a question that Nath asked of us a few weeks ago, and that is how crowded is your heart? You know, what is else is in there? What's that thing that you rely on or things that you depend on to really give you life? So I got the, uh, the noble gentleman in my growth group to write down their list, and here's what I wrote. My marriage to Carolyn, number one person who will love me in close proximity through all my ups and downs. Okay, that is a key ingredient. Uh, my professional reputation. Uh, very important to me that I'm regarded as hard and a reliable worker um, with a reasonable level of competence at what I do. I can tell that's a key ingredient because um, if you suggest that I've been unreliable or lazy or incompetent, I'm guaranteed to react. Now, if you do that in the courtyard over morning tea, I'm not going to take the bait. Okay, it's not going to work today. Determined to play it cool, but I will react, right? Uh, money is up there as well, not because I'm a multimillionaire, but because I, you know, I start to get worried when the balance gets low. And health is also in the mix um, because I think that if I lost those four kilos of, I don't know, kind of butter that just sort of hang around my belly because I have a very loyal relationship with ice cream, you know, I keep going back to it and it stays with me normally right around this section. I think if I could shed those four kilos, then, then I'd have life. You know, I would be strutting. Could it be that the love of my life, a professional reputation, enough coin, uh, a little less chub, really are the key ingredients in my life? And does relationship with God make any difference? If something happens to Carolyn, if I'm unable to work, if the money dried up, if I can't shed those four kilos because I've just ice cream so good, what then is my life? Does it, does it disintegrate? Is right relationship with God enough when everything else goes to pot? So that's the key question that today's passage from Ezekiel asks of us. Because the people of God hit rock bottom. Everything's gone. He is all they have left. But will he be enough? And will they even turn back to him after everything else has been removed? I mean, will Ezekiel do that? Would you do that? That's what we're looking at today. After last week's hiatus, we're back um, to finish off the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. And today is a real turning point as we hit rock bottom. Uh, after 32 chapters of rather stern oracles against a persistently rebellious nation of Israel and against her proud neighbours, the only way is up. And uh, chapter 33 is kind of the fulcrum from which things start to tilt upwards. Now to understand that, we, we actually need to go to the very end of chapter 24, when God tells Ezekiel, the prophet after whom this whole book is named, that the unthinkable is about to happen. The destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylon, the superpower of the day, is imminent. Let's read what God says to Ezekiel at the end of chapter 24. And you, son of man, on the day I take away their stronghold, that's Jerusalem, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes, their heart's desire, and their sons and daughters as well. On that day, a fugitive will come and tell you the news. At that time, your mouth will be opened. You will speak with him and will no longer be silent. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know I am the Lord. Okay, so you, you get it? There's this imminent warning, right? It's about to happen. The holy city of Jerusalem, temple and all, the focal point of God's promises, the locus of his presence, their joy and glory, their heart's desire is about to fall any second now. And a fugitive, 
uh, is going to escape from Jerusalem and he's going to come and tell you, Ezekiel, way over in exile in Babylon. And then the editor of the book of Ezekiel, rather cheeky person, heightens the suspense by inserting eight chapters of oracles and laments against the nations, like we looked at two weeks ago, giving Israel just a glimmer of hope that all would not be lost, that their proud and malicious neighbours wouldn't get away with their, their treatment of the people of God. But there's eight chapters with a tiny amount of promise at the very time that the fall of Jerusalem could happen at any moment. So the suspense builds and it builds and it builds across eight chapters until we get to chapter 33, verse 21. And I'm going to get you to read this in your own Bibles. We read this. In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me, Ezekiel, and said, the city has fallen. It's finally happened. Literally, the city has been smitten. And presumably this escapee was the first of a second wave of exiles who had made the long journey from Jerusalem to join Ezekiel and the initial wave of exiles in the land of Babylon. We have hit rock bottom. No place further we can fall. Where do we go from here? Well, as it turns out, ground zero is a good place for a turning point. When you've hit rock bottom, you can't dig any further. You've got to change it up. You've got to turn it around. You've got to change tack, try something different. Make ground zero a turning point. Most of us, when we hear ground zero, we automatically think of the site of the World Trade Centers after they'd been leveled in the September 11 attacks on New York City. You can see the two holes where the towers were. Um, that's ground zero. I wonder if you knew that the term actually derives from the American bombing of the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which ended World War II. I mean, ground zero, it refers to the point on the ground directly below detonation. Can you imagine being in that point? I, mean, I guess you wouldn't even know it, would you? And now ground zero, it just sort of means the epicenter of something kind of significant. Well, with the destruction of Jerusalem, the people of God were in their own ground zero. The city has fallen. It might be hard for us to understand why that um, is so devastating for them. Although we've got an idea of um, what it's like to lose your home because that happens often enough in our sunburned country, doesn't it? Our land of fires and droughts and flooding rains. But, it, but it's even more than that for the people of Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the focal point of all the promises of God. I mean, firstly, it was the capital of the land of Israel, which was literally known as the promised land, which God gave to the people when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Uh, it contained the temple, kind of the, the locus of true Israelite worship and where God's presence had dwelt up until around this point in time. It was the seat of the kingdom of Israel on which God had promised there would always be a king, a Messiah from the line of David reigning supreme. And it was intimately connected with the law, the Torah, which God gave them via Moses and which distinguished them from surrounding nations. And so all of that, promised land, temple, king and David's line, the law, seemingly destroyed with this news, the city has fallen. You know, it's like the marriage, the professional reputation, money's dried up, physical health, whatever it is for you, all gone. Seemingly all gone. And all they had left was relationship with God. 
But I think here's the real problem. Relationship with God wasn't ever really in the mix in the first place, I don't think. I mean, they just thought they would always enjoy the blessings of God without having a relationship with him. I just thought his promises were so sure and secure, it didn't matter if they ignored him. It didn't matter if they worshipped other gods. It didn't matter if their streets were filled with bloodshed and violence rather than compassion and generosity. They just sort of wanted the blessings without wanting him. And you can even see that in today's passage where, where the inhabitants of rural Israel, right, not Jerusalem, which had been smitten, but those who remained in the countryside, unbelievable, I cannot get over this, say these words in verse 24, read along with me. Abraham was only one man, yet he possessed the land. We are many. Surely the land has been given us to us as a possession. Therefore God says to Ezekiel, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, since you eat meat with the blood still in it, you look to your idols and you shed blood, should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, you do detestable things. Each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? <laughs> what are they thinking? The God has left, so the land is theirs. The landlord is gone. It's time to claim squatters' rights. They want the blessings of God. But they want him. They want the kingdom without wanting the king. Friends, you know it doesn't work that way, does it? You're going to claim to be a child of Abraham. You've got to walk in Abraham's ways, which means walking with God in faith. And so what option does their hearted rebellion give to God who desires right relationships with all the people he has made, loved and rescued? Well, eventually the only option is to take all those things, you know, the temple, the throne of David, away from them. And even rural Israel would become a wasteland. They're at ground zero, you know, the place directly below where the bomb goes off. And it ought to be a turning point for the people of God. It ought to be the fulcrum from which things tilt upwards, where words of judgment are replaced with words of hope and comfort. Well, in fact, this uh, chapter is a, uh, a turning point for the man Ezekiel. Uh, in chapter 24, his wife dies suddenly. He was probably only in his early 30s. She would have been younger, I imagine, maybe in her 20s. And this delight of his eyes, the object of his affection, just gone. And, and God says to Ezekiel, I actually don't want you to mourn in the usual way. Public, no public grief, no customary mourning rites, no weeping and wailing this time, no funeral clothes. And apart from the kind of oracles that he gave to the people that were dictated by God, you know, this is what the sovereign Lord says, Ezekiel kept pretty quiet um, for up to a decade. And even when his wife, the delight of his eyes, the object of his affection was taken from him, there was no public grief, no weeping and wailing. Inward groaning was all. And even that would be a sign that when Jerusalem, the delight of the people's eyes, the object of their affection, when, when that was taken, they would similarly have no opportunity to mourn as they commenced a long and sad march into the land of exile, into Babylon. You remember though, we saw at the end of chapter 24, uh, at that time, Ezekiel, your mouth will be opened. You'll speak and no longer be silent. And so when this fugitive... Um, this escapee, this first new exile from Jerusalem arrives in Babylon. Have a look, chapter 33, verse 24. 
have a look with me. The hand of the Lord was on me, says Ezekiel, and he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning. My mouth was opened and I was no longer silent. And do you know what it was? And from this point onward, he brings words of comfort. God would provide a good king for them. Chapter 34, a good shepherd after centuries of poor leadership from evil kings. And God would put a new heart and a new spirit within them. So they would be moved in wholehearted obedience towards God. And God would restore their nation from being like a valley scattered with dry bones to a vast army of reconstituted beings with the breath of God bringing them back to life. And he would build himself a new temple in which he would again dwell and from this temple would flow a river that would bring life wherever the water flowed. And so really it was words of hope that flowed from uh, like a river from Ezekiel after the people that hit rock bottom. Would it be a turning point for the people themselves in their own ground zero? Which uh, you know, prompts us to think, uh, is today a day to be a turning point for us, for you? And you know what? You, you don't even need to be at your own ground zero. Can I give you another reason? Why today, any time in fact, is a good time to turn back to God in faith. He's always ready to forgive. Always ready to forgive. Doesn't take you long. You do a very quick search and you'll discover that forgiveness has almost been turned into an industry in its own right these days. A quick search on the topic and you will discover articles that highlight you know, the 17 benefits of forgiving people. Uh, including health benefits. Did you realise this? Forgiveness actually brings health benefits, reduced anxiety, better sleep. I, I don't doubt any of that, man. I mean, one thing is true. Uh, if you hold on to resentment, it poisons your own soul, doesn't it? Somebody once described resentment as like taking poison and waiting for the other person to keel over. All the articles, all the programs about forgiveness say you can't be forced into it. You can only do it when you are ready. It won't work if somebody makes you forgive in your own spirit. You have to be ready to forgive. All the articles say that. And that sounds just about right too. Do you know though that God is always ready to forgive? Always ready to forgive. He doesn't need to study up on the five ways to know when you're ready. He's ready. In fact, he's far more ready to forgive, to extend forgiveness, than we are to ask for it. In the first half of Ezekiel 33, you would have picked this up when Sue read it, the Israelites are complaining that with the threat of Jerusalem falling, God is being unjust. Maybe you've felt that from time to time. God is being unjust to me. But God responds by saying, man, I've, I've not been unjust. I mean, for starters, I've sent Ezekiel to you, my watchman who keeps giving you warning after warning and so much notice so you can turn back to me. And he's done a, a, a ripper job of it, verse 5. If you'd have heeded his warnings, you'd have saved yourself. But moreover, he goes, whatever has gone before, it doesn't matter. You've been good or you've been wicked. Turn back now and I'll have you back. Don't rely on your past good behaviour. Don't worry about your past bad behaviour. I want to be in right relationship with you right now. Why won't you turn back to me? God utters these famous words in verse 11, which I think are worth the price of entry alone. Read them with me. Where God says, I take no pleasure 
in the death of the wicked. It's not fun for me. But rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? See, he's ready to forgive. He's ready to have us back. Takes no pleasure in the demise of any human and he pleads with all to turn back to him in repentance and faith. And you know what I reckon, friends? I reckon we know even more about this than the survivors of the siege of Jerusalem, than the exiles in Babylon. We understand his readiness to forgive because we know the great lengths he has gone to to make it possible, don't we? Taking on human form as his son walked among us, suffering human death as his son willingly climbed onto an executioner's cross, though he was blameless, to bear the judgment of God that we deserve because we all turned away from God, and then absorbing it fully until his body and spirit were spent, and then rising from death triumphantly in front of hundreds of eyewitnesses in order to declare that Jesus has paid it all, the penalty is paid, and that God takes great pleasure in the salvation rather than the destruction of the human creatures he has made. He has gone to great lengths, and he is ready to forgive. Well, that opportunity lay before the people of God, especially the exiles who were listening to Ezekiel by the rivers of Babylon. And it is strange to me to discover in verses 30 to 32 that Ezekiel had sort of developed a cult following. A bit, of a, a bit of a rock star. You know, wherever people gathered, whenever they had time for a chat, they'd be talking about Ezekiel's next performance, his next show. They'd come to hear him speak and sing. But would they heed his message? Turn back to God. Well, they liked to listen, but it seems they don't change. Let's read verse 31. My people... Come to you, Ezekiel, as they usually do, and they sit before you to hear your words. Verse 32, to them you're nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words but do not put them into practice. I guess enthusiasm has always been easier than obedience. It's exam time at the moment, isn't it? Anybody studying? bunch of suckers aren't they <laughs> I remember studying for exams late at night I'm not sure whether it was high school or, or later and I had uh, the radio tuned to this radio show called Love Song Dedications with Richard Mercer raise your hand romantics there you are. if you remember basically people would um, would ring in and they would dedicate love songs to their kind of uh, boyfriend or girlfriend or husband whatever it was and I, I like this because while I was you know, studying economics, it reminded me that there were things other than market forces at play in the world, you know, like love and romance and human connection. But it was something like this. Uh, it's Doza from Parramatta. I'm sending this love song to my girlfriend Shazza from Cabramatta. <laughs> Can't live if living is without you. And uh, Richard Mercer, who had this kind of deep, sonorous radio voice, he would say, no, Doza, tell us what you would like to say. And uh, Dazza would go, I'm working the night shift at the factory and I just want to say to you, Shazza, I love you and I can't live if living is without you. And they'd play the song and it was so corny. But actually it was really sweet and endearing, which is why I liked it. Now Ezekiel, he's been doing the bidding of God who pleads, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? And perhaps on occasion, Ezekiel would put it to music 
uh, or maybe you just sang it, or maybe it just sounded poetic, and the people responded by saying, isn't that nice, it's so sweet and endearing, as if it was love song dedications. Even when the people have hit rock bottom, even though they were right there when the bomb went off, nice, sweet, endearing is just an inappropriate response, isn't it? Well, ground zero was a turning point, a good place for a turning point. It certainly was for Ezekiel. Not sure that it was for the people of God, at least not yet, but you know what it can be for us today. Whether or not we've hit rock bottom, I mean, one thing you can't do is when you hear the word of God begging you to return to him rather than face his just judgment is to respond by saying, how lovely, how sweet, how endearing. Good sermon, vicar. Right, I've just been talking about judgment. Wherever you're at in life, that's just an inappropriate response to God's call to turn back to him, isn't it? Now, if you have hit ground zero today, uh, I would say, why wouldn't you concede that? Whatever that looks like in your life, why wouldn't you say, God, I don't know what's happened in my life and I don't know why it's happened. Uh, All I know is that I need you and I know that I've been walking away I know that you're um, more ready to forgive me than I am to ask. I want to turn back. Would you have me back? And you know he would. For he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he's gone to such great lengths that he is ready to have you back. But even if you're not at ground zero, turn back to a renewed and a refreshed relationship with God. I mean... You might be looking at your life and you realise the relationship with God through his magnificent son, Jesus, with all that involves, you know, trusting in his good and gracious promises, living wholeheartedly for him. You might think, that's just been the wheat bix in my banana pancakes. You know, that's the, the Vegemite in the bolognese recipe. It's in there somewhere, but I could hardly describe it as the key ingredient might say or you might think I've relied on my spouse what a great gift she is or he is but man I can't bear that pressure upon them and besides that's taking your rightful place in my life where you might think I've held on to my professional reputation too tightly which is so dumb because I won't be working forever or I've longed for a bit more money or a little less flab or whatever it is as if that would give me life When you are the giver of life, I am sorry and I turn back to you. You know, he pleads for us to turn back and he is more ready to forgive than we are to ask. Now friends, as we finish up, the people in Ezekiel's day, they trusted in, in fact, really they presumed upon a number of blessings from God, but they didn't want him. And you could tell by the way they carried on. And I don't know the details of your life with precision, but I wonder whether you could be more or less the same or whether relationship with God is just somewhere in your life's recipe, but you'd hardly say it's the key ingredient. Well, today offers each one of us a chance to turn back to him and receive forgiveness. Through his son, God has gone to great lengths to offer it and he's more than ready. And today offers us a chance to turn back to him and live for him with all of our hearts in every aspect of our lives.
And so turn, friends. Turn back. Turn to him. Let's pray together. We'll actually have a chance to um, do just that, turn back to God as we celebrate in the Lord's Supper in just a few moments' time. But let me finish by praying the words of a song that we've already sung today on our behalf. Be thou our vision, O Lord of our heart. Nought be all else to us, save that thou art. Thou and thou only, first in our heart. High King of heaven, our treasure thou art. Heart of our own hearts, whatever befall, still be our vision, O ruler of all. Amen.